Hey, C Church, my name's Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here, and I am honored to be opening up God's Word for us today. Today is a special day. It's Father's Day. It's my sister's birthday. Shout out to Nancy. It's also officially the first day of summer, so lots to be excited about. I do want to give a quick shout out to all the dads who are watching. Happy Father's Day to you. You are a gift to your family. And I also want to acknowledge that today is a challenging day for some of us. Some of you who are watching desire to be dads and have not yet had the opportunity, and I pray for you for peace in the waiting. Some of you watching have lost children. I pray for strength for you in the middle of your storm. And for those of you who have lost your dads, today might be a day of sadness and mourning, and I pray that in the midst of the mourning, you would find hope and joy as you remember and you reflect on their legacies. The reality is some of us have amazing dads that we've learned from or continue to make memories with while others are trying their best to forget those memories because of the pain. And so we do acknowledge and recognize that there's just a wide range of emotion today. We want to honor that and say we're praying for you, that God meets you exactly where you are today. The story I want to unpack for us as we continue our series on healthy families is about a father. And although this story is about a dad, the more I studied it, the more I realized this story goes far beyond the role of a healthy father figure. So I want you to hear me out today. This is not necessarily a Father's Day message geared towards dads only. It's a message that I believe applies to all of us. A message I pray reminds us that how we live our lives today matters. The decisions we make today, right here, right now, it matters. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to 1 Kings chapter 11. Uh, I find it on page 493 in my Bible, so depending on your font size, Bible size, it should be around that general area. But I want us to unpack the life of David. And I find we can learn something significant about David's life by studying the life of his son, Solomon. So 1 Kings chapter 11, I'm going to start at verse 1. We'll skip a few verses along the way. I'll guide you through it. But if you're able, why don't you stand with me as we read God's word together. 1 Kings chapter 11. It reads this. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hettites. They were from nations which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. And so Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David, his father, had done. Skip with me to verse 9. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. And so the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude, and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates." Nevertheless, for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. Yet I will not even tear the whole kingdom from him, but will still give him one tribe for the sake of David, my servant, 
and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. One last verse in verse 34. But I will not take the whole kingdom out of Solomon's hand. I have made him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of David, my servant, whom I chose and who obeyed my commands and decrees. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word. We thank you that on Father's Day, we can remember that you are a good father, that you are a caring and faithful dad. And we thank you for that. Lord, as we dive into your word, would you teach us? Would you open our eyes and open our ears to see and hear what you want us to see and hear today? Would you teach us how to live a legacy, to be godly fathers and mothers, brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles? We just look to you and we ask you to teach us your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, some of you know this, our family is growing from a family of three to a family of four. My wife Michelle is due uh, a week ago, and so baby is just extra comfy in there. But for those of you who have kids and know that the family is growing, the more your family grows, the hours of sleep you get diminishes significantly. And we've already started to feel this as the baby's not even here yet. We're exhausted. There's just so many things to juggle in these coming days. If you've attended our church more than one time, physically or online, you probably noticed that I love wearing hats. I'm a hat wearer. I literally wear a hat every day. And this is the reality. I wear many hats, and you wear many hats. You see, I have many different roles in my life. The role of a husband, a father, soon to be a father of two, a son, a brother, an uncle, a cousin, a pastor, a songwriter, a car enthusiast, a friend, the list goes on. And no matter where you find yourself in your journey, you have many hats you're juggling too. King Solomon was wearing many hats. He was extremely wealthy. He was a powerful national leader. He was the third king of Israel, built the first temple in Jerusalem. He was the second son to King David and Bathsheba. 700 wives, 300 mistresses, do the math, that is 1,000 women. If we were doing a series on unhealthy families, I'm pretty sure we would have a couple sermons about that family dynamic. He was a beautiful poet. 1 Kings 4.32 tells us he composed 3,000 proverbs and 1,005 songs. He wrote three books in our Bible, Song of Solomon, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. These are known as the wisdom literature. Why is it wisdom literature? Well, he was known and is known as the wisest man to ever live. So looking at all his accomplishments, taking a quick glance at his life, you would think that this guy is living the dream maybe minus the 700 wives. That's a different message for a different day. But despite the fact that he was wearing all these different hats, towards the end of his life, he still pens these words, which we now know as Ecclesiastes 2.11. And it says, When I surveyed all that my hands had done, and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. And so all the effort, all the toiling, all the achievements... Everything was meaningless. And so the question I have for us today is how many hats can one wear before one wears out? Or better yet, what are the essential hats that we cannot live without? Hats are not only the roles we play in our families and our communities. Hats are also the decisions we make which change the trajectory of not only our futures, but the future of our kids and our kids and our kids, 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 and so on. God is the God of generations. He sees our lives in the context of the bigger picture as he constantly weaves together stories of people, families, generations into his eternal purposes. And we see that in our passage today. Over and over again, we read, because of your father, David, 
God showed mercy, grace, and favor towards Solomon and even Solomon's son in the midst of bad decisions. And so what was it about David's life that blessed Solomon? What hats were essential to David and let's call it his spiritual wardrobe? Three things I've learned about David through the life of Solomon in this story. David was completely committed. He had a humble heart. His life was saturated in scripture. Completely committed, a humble heart, and his life was saturated in scripture. And so let's walk through our story again and unpack these three points that we can hopefully take away with us today. Number one, he was completely committed. The story starts off with Solomon's desire and love for many foreign women. God gives Solomon a clear warning. Do not intermarry with them. They're going to turn your heart away from me. And how did Solomon respond? It says at the end of verse 2, Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. So he completely ignored God's command and pursued his heart's desires. And of course, God was right. As Solomon grew old, his wives did turn his heart after other gods. Verse 4 says, His heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. And verse 6 says, He did not follow the Lord completely as David his father had done. And so we learn in this story that David was fully devoted. He was completely committed. And that's the first essential hat we learn in David. Now, those, for those of you who know the story of David's life, it's hard to wrap your head around the fact that he was completely committed. He was fully devoted. How on earth was David fully devoted to God while simultaneously messing up in some pretty major ways? See, David's life wasn't perfect. We know he sinned. In fact, Solomon was the fruit of a marriage that really didn't start off on the right foot. If you don't know the story, I'll give you a quick recap. David is roaming around on his rooftop. He looks down, sees a beautiful woman in the bath. Ironically, her name is Bathsheba. I find this fascinating. That's like going to a library and the librarian's name is Mr. Bookman or an ice cream man named Mr. Cone. I think that is fascinating. Anyways, he orders to have her brought to him. He commits adultery with Bathsheba. Later, David finds out that she's pregnant. So we see the sin of lust, then we see the sin of adultery. David panics, what do I do? So he orders to have Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, sent out to a battle where he would be strategically placed in the forefront. He asked the men to retreat so that he would be struck down to die. So we see lust, we see adultery, we see murder. Bathsheba hears about the death of her husband, she mourns, her and David get married, they have a son. And because all of this displeased the Lord greatly, the Lord punishes David by the death of his first son. Then they have a second son, Solomon. There are other stories we read of David falling short, missing the mark. We know he wasn't perfect, that he made mistakes. But although David messed up in some pretty major ways, the Lord still refers to him as fully devoted, completely committed to following the Lord. And I ask the question, why? David's life reveals to us that it doesn't take perfection to please God. Being completely committed is not the pursuit of perfection. It's constantly pursuing the perfect one. In the Passion Translation Bible, Psalm 101, verse 2 to 4 reads this, I'm trying my best in the way of integrity, especially in my own home. 
but I need your help. I'm wondering, Lord, when will you appear? I despise what is evil and everything that moves my heart away from you. I will not let evil hold me in its grip. Every perverse and crooked way I have put away from my heart, for I will have nothing to do with the deeds of darkness. Now, this is fascinating. This seems like the exact opposite response of Solomon. See, God warns Solomon, if you intermarry with these women, it'll turn your heart away from me. Solomon does it anyways. In fact, he does it times 700. And here we have David saying, I despise what is evil. In fact, anything that moves my heart away from you, I literally want nothing to do with it. Being completely committed is not a life of perfection. It is a consistent pursuit towards God. Being fully devoted, being completely committed is actively turning to God and running from evil. James 4, 7, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resisting is running away. David's desire is to run away from evil. And in our story we read about Solomon, he hears the warning, but ignores it and runs towards evil. Resisting the enemy, running towards God, is a day-to-day, moment-by-moment, minute-by-minute commitment. It's the discipline of actively pursuing God and seeking after Him, running away from the schemes, the lies, the temptations, and into the arms of grace. And just like David, we stumble along the way. You know, sometimes I wonder, what would happen to David if he was alive in 2021? How would the church view him? How would Christians see David? With cancel culture, would we just cancel him? Would we write him off? Say, that's it, remove all the King David songs from Praise 106.5. I'm assuming his band name is King David. Uh, Take his poetry off the shelves at House of James. No more King David. But see, God doesn't cancel him out. God is not in the business of cancel culture. He doesn't write people off. He actually draws people in. And so wherever you are on your journey today, be encouraged. There is grace available for you. Because when we're completely committed to God, you also become completely surrounded by grace. It's a package deal. Now, we don't keep stumbling along and keep getting caught up in the same sin over and over again. Sometimes it does take a radical decision. You know, when I was in high school, I was in a relationship with a girl, and uh, she wasn't a believer, and I thought, you know, maybe I can flirt to convert or whatever it was, and it was just turning my heart away from God. And I had friends that I was hanging out with. A lot of them were drug dealers or gangsters, and unfortunately, many of them have passed away due to gang activity. But I was in the middle of all this, and God started just getting my attention. And I started going to church on my own instead of being dragged to church. And God started speaking to my heart, and I felt that God was doing something amazing, and I needed to leave these friendships and this relationship. And so I made some phone calls. I made a radical decision. I just called this person and said, you know what? We need to break up. I need to follow the Lord with all my mind, body, soul, and strength, and I have to do it on my own. I called friends, said the same thing. It was confusing for them. It was kind of confusing for me because everything was so new, but I just knew I needed to make a radical decision. These people were turning my heart away from God. You see, wholehearted devotion requires a commitment, a predetermined resolve to allow nothing and no one to separate us from our allegiance to God. So we see that David was completely committed. Number two, David had a humble heart. This wholehearted devotion we talk about, 
is wholehearted. There is a heart aspect to being fully committed. It takes a humble heart. So when successes or failures, highs, lows, no matter what the season or what the circumstance, a humble heart always turns towards God. Look at verse 9 in our text. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. We see that Solomon's heart turns away from the Lord, whereas David, who is known in the Bible as a man after God's own heart, always wants to run towards God and wants nothing to do with evil. Psalm 119.34, Give me understanding, and I will keep your law and obey it with all my heart. There's a commitment there. There's humility there. Something that got my attention about this particular verse, it says Solomon's heart turned away from God after God appeared to him twice. What's that all about? I want to take a moment and address an issue that I find happens in my life often. I call it spiritual dementia. God would show up in my life, answer a prayer, heal a family member, heal a church member, move in a mighty way, provide a need for the family that we needed so badly. And then two days later, when something comes up and we need to pray, I have little faith or no faith, wondering if God's even going to come through. In 2 Chronicles chapter 1, God appears to Solomon, asks him whatever he wanted, more than anything. Solomon didn't ask for a fancier car, a bigger house, to be healthier. He asked for wisdom and knowledge to lead the nation well. This is a very humble request, very admirable. I'm pretty sure I would probably be tempted to ask for a white Ferrari 458 Italia, red leather interior, custom suspension, ungraded wheels. Clearly, I need a heart transplant. Don't judge me. But because of his humble request, God blessed him far beyond wisdom. You see, Solomon's story is a wake-up call for us today. His story starts with the humility. In fact, the first 10 chapters in 1 Kings, for the most part, are pretty encouraging in regards to Solomon's life. But it takes a bad turn in the chapter we read where Solomon disobeys God's command and just follows his own heart's desire. We need to be aware that just like God reveals himself to Solomon, God reveals himself to us today. And even though he does that, that doesn't mean we're guaranteed to end well. In David's life, his humility protected him. A humble heart protects us. A humble heart gives us the pathway to ending well. Psalm 25, 9 says, He guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. Psalm 149, 4, For the Lord takes delight in his people. He crowns the humble with victory. James 4, 10, Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. This is a reminder when we pray, we humble ourselves. We don't pray, Lord, would you humble me? This is a very dangerous prayer, and we don't want to ask for that. Luke 14, 11 reminds us of that. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled. This is punishment. But those who humble themselves will be exalted. And so how exactly did David protect this posture of humility, and how do we protect our hearts? I think we learn from David that a humble heart is founded on a life that practices confession and repentance. We talk about this a lot because it's very important. And in our story, we see two men. We see a father and we see a son, both falling in some major ways. They both sin against God, yet their stories look a little different. You see, for Solomon, he continued down a bad path. You don't just marry 700 women in one wedding ceremony. This is one long downward spile with one bad decision after another bad decision. 
Yet in David's life, we see lust, adultery, murder, and then confession. We get access to his journal entry in Psalm 51 of what he was going through and what his heart was thinking after he sinned against God with Bathsheba. David makes no excuse for himself. His journal entry shows us his struggle with human weakness. 51 verse 3, For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. David is aware of his weakness. It says in Psalm 25, 11, For the sake of your name, O Lord, forgive my iniquity, though it is great. And so David shows us he had a humble heart and that when he falls short, he openly admits it and confesses and repents his sin to God. And what happens when we confess our sins? The Bible promises if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, to purify us from all unrighteousness. A humble heart is not beating yourself up, saying you're worthless, you're worth nothing, I suck at life. A humble heart is acknowledging who God is, his beauty, his forgiveness, his power, and who we are in God, his children. Point number three, he was saturated in scripture. Verse 34 says, but I will not take the whole kingdom out of Solomon's hand. I have made him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of David, whom I chose and who obeyed my commands and decrees. I want to talk about chose, but first let's talk about obeying commands and decrees. King David loved the law. And one of the reasons he loved the law so much was because of his humble heart. When we say he loved the law, what we're talking about in David's case is the Torah. The Torah contains the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And I find this amazing that David loved the law, and these are the books that he had access to. Like when I see Leviticus, I say, are you kidding me? This is a book that kind of puts me to sleep, I'm not going to lie. But he loved Leviticus. Psalm 19, verse 7 to 10. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, even honey from the honeycomb. David loved the law. So when we see the words law, statutes, precepts, commands, decrees, they are all referring to the law, the Torah. Psalm 119, which some scholars suggest maybe it was King David. There are other candidates that scholars believe could have written the longest psalm in our Bibles. But regardless of the writer, it reiterates the point that we need to have our lives saturated in scriptures. Verse 9 of 119 says, How can a young person stay on the path of purity? A question many of us are asking today. And it gives us the answer. By living according to your word, I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. We wonder and we ask ourselves, how do we protect our hearts? How do we stay the course? Verse 133, direct my footsteps according to your word. Let no sin rule over me. Verse 105, your word is a lamp for my feet and a light onto my path. Being saturated in scriptures lights our path, gives us direction. I love that the Bible talks about itself and describes itself. 
The Apostle Paul mentions in 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 that all scriptures breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, correction, for training in righteousness, that every man of God, every woman of God may be completely equipped for every good work. So what happens in our lives when we're absolutely saturated in the scriptures? It helps us stay the course. It recalibrates our souls to stay the course of being completely committed. It realigns our hearts towards humility. It creates in us humble hearts by correcting, reproof, protecting, training, equipping. His word is his words to us. This is where we hear from him. And if we hear from him, we learn more about his character, who he is, how he operates, his love, his kindness, his forgiveness, his righteousness, that he's just. And that, of course, would create in us a desire to be completely committed. Of course, that creates a humility in our hearts when we see how big he is and how little we are. We would say, who am I, Lord, that you are even mindful of me? You see, these three hats are crucial for us to not only honor God with our lives today, but continue a legacy of blessing to the generations that come after us. Because David lived completely committed with a humble heart and a life that was saturated in the scriptures, Solomon was spared from much worse punishment he deserved from his bad decisions. Even Solomon's son, for the sake of David, didn't lose the entire kingdom, but was spared one tribe because of his grandfather. And so how we live right now, the decisions we make today, big or small, affect the generation to come. So we need to live a life that is completely committed, fully devoted to God, with humility and a hunger for his word. But there's one more thing I want to highlight before we close, and it's that word chose. In verse 34, for the sake of David, my servant, whom I chose and who obeyed my commands and decrees. There are six covenants that take place in Scripture. The fifth one is known as the Davidic covenant. It's found in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and also refers to it in Psalm 89. This Davidic covenant was made between God and David and took place when King David made plans to build God a house of cedar. You see, King David was sitting. Kingdom of Israel has been blessed and was prospering. David's sitting, looking around at all that's happening. And he sees that his house is made of cedar and God is just dwelling in a tent. And so he wanted to build God a house of cedar. David shared his thoughts with the prophet Nathan. And later that night, God spoke to Nathan, telling him to tell David he did not want David to build him a house of cedar. Instead, God promised to build David a house. Metaphorically, this meant God would establish David's line. And what does this mean for David? Number one, he would bless the kingdom of David's son, Solomon. He promised to be a father to Solomon, disciplining him when necessary, but also never forsaking him. Number two, he promised that David's throne would be established forever. And in this, we see the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ, who was a descendant of the house of David, whose kingdom will be forever. And number three, this Davidic covenant is an unconditional covenant. Its fulfillment does not depend on David's actions, Solomon's actions, his son's actions, or anyone in this household. And because of this covenant between God and David, David now becomes a filter. Think of it like Instagram. You put your filter and the picture is not the original picture anymore. It looks a little different. Every time God looks at Solomon, he sees him through the filter of David. 
through this promise, this covenant. And so when Solomon screws up, when he commits a sin that's displeasing and hurtful to God, God would still honor his promise to establish David's house forever. Through the house of David, we get the sixth covenant, the new covenant through Jesus Christ the Messiah. Jesus arrives on the scene and the covenant reaches its fullest fulfillment. Jesus becomes the obedient mediator. He is the real solution to sin. God's new covenant reverses Adam's sin, reverses Adam's rebellion once and for all. And so what does this mean for us today? When we commit our lives to Jesus, when we accept him as our Lord and Savior, when our hearts turn towards God, he no longer looks at us without a filter. Jesus, the Messiah from the house of David, whose kingdom will be established forever, becomes our filter. Everything we do is seen through the filter of Christ and his work on the cross. This new covenant through Jesus is an unconditional covenant. Its fulfillment does not depend on my actions, on your actions. And this is the good news. This is the gospel. And this is available to you today, right here, right now, this moment. A moment that could change your life forever. A moment that could change your family tree forever. And so there are three ways we can respond today. And I want you to be honest with God. Again, the hats we wear, the decisions we make, have huge impact on our lives and the lives of those who come after us. Maybe for some of you, you are watching today and you know in your heart you need to make this commitment to follow God, to accept Him as your Lord and Savior. I promise it will be the best decision you've ever made. Maybe someone needs to make a radical decision of ending a friendship or ending a relationship because they are turning your heart away from God. Seek Him for wisdom and peace and he will give it to you. Some of you need to maybe take a moment to humble yourselves before God and practice confession and repentance. Maybe God is putting something on your heart right now that you need to confess. Some of you need to make a commitment to allowing God to speak to you through his word, through the scriptures. They need to be your compass. It needs to be your source of spiritual nutrition rather than social media and Facebook. So I want, you to have a, I want to make room for you today to have a moment to respond. Our CA music team is going to respond with a song. It's one of my favorite songs from back in the day. And ironically, when I used to hear the song growing up, uh, it was during my rebellious days as a teenager. But now I've come to pray these words often. And as they are singing it, taking a moment, take a moment with the Lord. Make a commitment between you and Him. Share it with a friend or let us know. We'd love to be your community to come alongside you, to cheer you on on your journey. But as we sing this song together and pray these words, would you pray these honestly as we commit or recommit our lives to him today? God bless you.